But before answering them, he'll move on to other questions. And then he might circle back and answer some of those original ones before moving on to something else, okay? So that's why it's important just to kind of something outside. It's, it's something outside. Okay. All right. Thanks, Ab. So he, um, he'll move on to new questions and then circle back and answer a few more before, before moving on again, as if he's saying, well, what about this? And what about this? And that is, it's a back and forth, almost a thrashing about, sort of like a caged animal desperately trying to free itself. That might be one way you could think of it. Um, so you're trapped in this thing. And he's like, well, what about here? And can I find it here? Like that. You might also say Koleth is having a conversation with himself and has written it down. We are, in a sense, seeing this thought process play out in his mind. We are witnesses firsthand, as it were, of Koalesh's search. As he remembers scenes from his life, then examines them to see their significance and what he can learn, then he quickly, without warning, turns to examine something else before tying the two together. So as we, as we read, certain questions are raised in our mind, and almost as quickly as they come up, Koaleth is providing an answer. So he'll talk about something, and then he starts talking about something else, and what you might realize is that first thing that he was talking about raises a question or concern in your mind, and the next thing he starts talking about addresses that. Okay? And this, and it is this juxtaposition of disparate ideas that moves the story forward, okay? Or adds more information to our minds, to our understanding. Um, and this is, after all, how our minds work. They take two or more ideas and sort of create a connection between the two. Um, as an example, think of how a movie progresses, okay? So if you have an image of someone sneaking through the woods very carefully, quietly, that's one image. And another image is, is of a deer kind of eating peacefully, and then you cut back to the person sneaking through the woods and they step on a twig. Then you cut back to the deer who's eating and looks up like this, right? Your mind is connecting those two images and creating a story, as it were, in your head, right? And that is a story of, say, great alertness, something along those lines, right? Now, if you were to take that exact same image of the person sneaking through the woods, but now you cut it with an image of some tribe or some people building a booby trap, right? And the person sneaking through the woods, cut to the people building the booby trap, cut to the guy back sneaking through the woods, and now he steps on the twig. What do you think is going to happen? I mean... Yeah, you think he's going to fall into the booby trap. But it's the exact same footage of the guy sneaking through the woods. The reason I bring that up is just to point out that when you put two things next to each other, your mind creates a story, and Koaleth uses this. Solomon actually uses it a lot in the Proverbs, too. So we saw that when we looked at the proverb of the, the upright on the level highway and the sluggard going through the hedge of thorns by looking at the two from the other perspective you can learn more than just the one thing on its own okay so 
Coalesce doing that here, he's just doing it with um, more complex ideas, okay? But it's the same basic thing that he does in the Proverbs. All right. Um, we saw, okay, we saw this in the Proverbs. Okay, so question from last time. It's, it's done, but I think it was something outside as the... Oh, okay. Well, they'll get a little toasty. <laughs> Does anyone need the question sheet? Okay. Um, you want to give me one? Okay. So the first question on your sheet, I believe, <clears throat> actually should look at this, um, is, and I'm asking this rhetorically now, but we'll, we can answer it later, um, why does Koaleth start chapter 3 the way he does? How does this relate to the previous chapters? Okay, that's your first question there. <clears throat> so, that what I just discussed about the two images is really what we're going to look at today to help you guys see um, how he's building his argument or build his complex thoughts in our minds. So if we think back, one of the questions we're left with at the end of 226 is, when God gives this wisdom, knowledge and joy... Oh, sorry. The question we're left with at the end of 226 is, when will God give this wisdom, knowledge, and joy to the one who pleases him? When do we get our reward or when are the wicked punished? You might also ask, how does God give us the joy? Coalesce doesn't actually ask these questions. These are, however, questions that arise in our minds. And what Coalesce turns to in answer to these questions is that God has made everything beautiful in its time. We just do not know when it is. So let's step back and summarize the end of chapter 2 through verse 15 in chapter 3 to see how this develops, okay? So in 2.11, we learn that what we gain from work does not satisfy. And in 2.21, we cannot keep our gain anyway. And even worse, it might end up going to a fool. In 22 and 23, work itself is an irritation and doesn't satisfy. Then he concludes that it is best to enjoy work and the fruits thereof, because this is part of God's design. This, however, reminds us of chapter 1, verse 18, where he says, wisdom and knowledge lead only to sorrow. So you've got God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy, but then what we learned in chapter 1 is that the more wisdom and knowledge we get, the more sorrow we get. So this raises two questions in our minds that I can think of anyway. Okay, so one of them is, when will God give us this joy? And the other question is, how will God give us this joy? With these two questions in mind, Coalesce turns to examine the fact that God has an appointed time for all things. That's what we saw at the beginning of chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. So those are our two ideas that he's juxtaposing with each other, okay? The one, or on the one hand, God will give joy to the righteous. And on the other hand, God has a set of structures 
and has an appointed time for all things. Those are the two images. So Koaleth does not make the connection for you. You have to make the connection between these two ideas. So let's try and answer that. How do these two ideas relate? Okay. There are two ways to answer this, as I've already said, that, that I could come up with anyway. So one is in relation to when, and the other is in relation to how. So first, think of the when. If the question is, when will God give us this joy, how does Koaleth's placement of these two ideas answer that question? Okay, that's, the, that's question one there on your sheet. Any takers on that? We have, I'm going to simplify it again. On the one hand, we have the idea that God uh, <clears throat> will give joy to the righteous. And on the other hand, you have this idea that, hey, God has a time for all things. God does things in his time. So how do those two relate to give you kind of an answer to that first question? I have a little trouble with it because I think he's saying that God created everything perfect and then cursed it and then he will rectify it. But I'm not sure why he called this an iniquity. Called what? That God will rectify this iniquity. Oh, right. So you're, but you're talking about... Um, I'm talking about or, your question, not actually scripture. Okay, could you could you try and answer it again, how those two things, I guess I'm not seeing your, not catching. I, I think Kaleth believes that God is sovereign and God is good. Right. And, and controls all things. Yeah. The conflict is, how did he create the world as good? and then curse it to its present state. I see. Okay. We and, are going to talk about that, and and, that, but that's not, that's not the question currently. So I agree with you. He does, he does talk about that, um, but I think he deals with that a little bit later. Right now I'm talking simply about the transition between Chapter 2 and Chapter 3. So at the end of Chapter 2 we get the idea that God will give joy, but in then beginning of chapter 3, through those first eight verses, we get the idea that God has an appointed time for all things. Owen? Okay, so maybe there's an appointed time for God to give us our joy, right? That makes sense, right? And that fits with what he's talking about, which is to say, um, if God says he's going to give us something, and we trust that he has a time for all things, he's a faithful God, he will give it to us in his time, not our time. That makes, I think that's a good answer to the question, right? If the question is, 
when is he going to give this thing? And the other question I think it also raises in our minds is how? Like, if on the one hand, knowledge and wisdom lead to more sorrow, but God says he's going to give knowledge and wisdom and joy to those who do good before him, how's he going to do that, right? We know that he is going to do it in his time. How do you think he's going to do it? So to answer the... Let me try and read this so I'm not winging it as much and then get totally lost. Um, If the question is, when will God give me this joy, coalesce placement helps to answer that question. So on the one hand, you have the truth that God gives joy to those who please him. And on the other hand, you have the idea that God does things in his time. God will give it in his time. So the lesson in that case would be be patient and trust the Lord God gives the joy when he determines it is the right time. Another way you could interpret the juxtaposition of these ideas or the other question that's raised in your mind is in what way or how will God give the joy? So if the question is how will God give this joy and this is juxtaposed to the idea that God does things in his time according to his structure, what might your answer be to that? Mrs. Moore, would you give her the mic just so we are adhering to the... Well, could it be that he brings joy to us through the various seasons that we go through, but the joy may result at a time in a circumstance that is not expected. So in looking through the list of um, seeming opposites, a time to kill and a time to heal, that that joy isn't limited to when we would expect it, but rather, as we've already said, it's in his time, but even in a way that could be going through the season in and of itself could could be the manner that he brings the joy. Yeah. No, that's right. Well... That's, I would agree with that, right? Let me put it that way. And I think that does answer the question. And I think he models that very way of thinking, which is to say he looks at the structure God has in place, the way that God's done it, and what he knows about God's character. And that itself gives him that comfort and joy. So he finds the joy in the structure itself, you could say. Okay, so... The way God gives that joy is through the structure that he's created. So if you have food and drink and work, you should enjoy those as gifts from God because that is how he has designed you to receive the joy. That is how he's designed things. Okay, so enjoy your lot without trying to be God. This is what Koaleth speaks to in verses 11 to 15. Okay, so that's what we looked at last time. It's kind of a review but from a big picture point of view. Um, So God's sovereignty over time and events. And from this, Koaleth turns to see in verse 16 that wickedness is all around him. And this is kind of what 
Stephen was, or Mr. Sparks, let me say, was referring to earlier. Um, so let me read that real quick. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. So if we just look at that verse and we compare it to what we just looked at at the um, at the beginning of chapter 3, okay? So on the one hand, again, we have God has a time for everything and he's created things according to a certain structure and you put that next to the idea that there's wickedness everywhere, right? Because that's ultimately what Koaleth's saying. He tells us that he's seen wickedness in the highest places of justice and the highest places of righteousness, so by extension, he's seen it everywhere. So in short, he sees that wickedness is all around him. This might be called the problem of evil. On the other hand, he sees God's sovereignty. How does he explain that, right? So our explanation for how these two things relate tells us what we think about God, right? So for Koaleth, this really isn't a great problem. He presents these two things, and then in 17, he answers it. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there's a time for every matter and for every work. So he simply reminds himself of what he knows of God's character and of what he just revealed about God's sovereignty. So when he says, I said in my heart, in other words, I counseled myself, I said to my soul, I reminded myself. We see from this that he's looking back and reminding himself of something. And in this case, that God will judge the righteous and the wicked. So when he sees this evil or wickedness surrounding him in verse 16, he reminds himself of who God is. And because there's a time for every matter and for every work, this is the truth he just learned in verse 11, right? God has made everything beautiful in its time. That must mean, this is what he comes to, that there is a time for God to judge not only the righteous, but the wicked as well. This comes from his understanding of who God is, which is a righteous judge. Okay, so, but this is not, however, the only conclusion you could come to when you compare these two things, right? God's in control of all things, and yet there's wickedness all around. How do you make sense of that? Um, this is not, for example, the conclusion that the unregenerate heart comes to. They conclude that God creates evil, or that God is sometimes evil and sometimes good, or that God is not truly perfect, but makes mistakes, etc. This is somewhat analogous, let's say, to how the Greeks viewed their gods, if you read some of their mythology. So the question for us, however, is what does Koalath have to believe about God to conclude what he does? So that's your next question. What does Koalath have to believe about God to come to the conclusion that he does when he compares these two images? On the one hand, God's sovereign and in control of all things, and on the other, that there's wickedness throughout his creation. And he comes to the conclusion that God will judge the wicked and the righteous at some point, right, in his timing, according to his 
uh, way. Um, but what does he have to believe about God to come to those conclusions? You want to give it a shot? Clearly, either God's sovereignty is over evil or evil is over God's sovereignty. In this case, it seems Koleth believes firmly that God's sovereignty is over and in control of wickedness in spite of how it may appear to us from our perspective. Yeah. Clearly, if he's going to judge it, he's superior to it. He's over it. Absolutely. I mean, these, this is very fun. I'm asking a basic fundamental question. So for most of you, it's probably so obvious you're thinking about something else. But thank you. That's right. That's a very basic thing. That's, he's, he's clearly over it. He's more powerful than it. Okay. What else, what else there? What, what else does he have to learn about, know about God? Maybe that um, God is... <laughs> I just lost the word. <laughs> um. Well, that he's righteous in his judgments. Yes. And he doesn't just judge and, and make decisions. He's righteous in his judgments. Yeah. He's righteous and he's a righteous God. He's a just God, right? He's also a judge. It's another thing. He, so he's supreme overall. He's going to judge all. Okay. Yeah. Um, any other ideas? I, I think he's, um, Don mentioned this earlier, um, last week, I think, but that God's a merciful God, right? He also has to believe that God's a merciful God to some degree. Um, because if God were just just, and he were just a judge, we'd all be in a lot of trouble. Okay. And I think we get that notion at the end of verse 13, and really throughout, where it's God has given us these blessings of joy. God has given us enjoyment in our work. He's given us food. He's created things this way. And this is a blessing and a pleasure for us. Okay, so that also is a part of God's character. We don't deserve it. It's just a gift from God. And that's how he phrases it at the end of 13. This is God's gift to man. Everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. Okay, so <clears throat> you have to believe that God, this is to summarize what, what people have said. Um, you'd have to believe that God is a righteous and just God. Otherwise, there'd be no call to judge. Also, that God is a merciful God. So knowing that God is a good God, he hates wickedness and loves righteousness. He, conclude, he concludes that God will condemn wickedness, even that which is found in the righteous. So there's no comfort in an all-powerful God unless this God is disposed towards our good. Okay, so a quick review. What was Koalath's answer to the problem of wickedness in the place of righteousness and justice? And when I say his answer, I mean what does he do when he sees that? What is his answer in that sense? He reminds himself that God will judge him. Yes, that's right. Thank you, Owen. So 
part of that, if you think about it, it's a very simple statement, but if it brings into it all the things that we talked about, it's much more intricate, you could say, than just God's going to judge him, right? It's that God is over that. He's sovereign over it. He's a righteous and loving God. He's going to deal with it in his time. So in a sense, he's recognizing God will take care of that. God will deal with it in his timing. I don't have to to deal with it, right? Okay, so his answer to the problem of wickedness in the place of justice and righteousness is that he reminds himself of God's character and God's sovereignty and concludes that God will deal with it by his means and in his time. And this is a great comfort, right? Um, We can trust that God is in charge of things, that he's sovereign over things, and that is a great comfort to those who do good before him. Okay, so what are some things we can learn from this? In the time of social media and everything where everything is just blasted out in front of your face constantly, it can be very depressing. And um, just when you're seeing the evil right there in front of your eyes all the time, being bombarded and just um, the culture we live in, it's good to know that um, there is a time and place for those um, and that everything will be just taken care of no matter um, what. So just a good encouragement on those days of discouragement when it seems like there's just a lot going on and there's evil around us, especially I think of my children. I'm sure a lot of parents do. And growing up in this world where I'm like, are they going to be prepared for this? Um, Knowing that that God will have vengeance. So. Mm -hmm. Caleb, could you turn in your Bible to Romans 9, 19 to 24? And then if you could just hold your finger there, and I wanted to give people a little more time, but what are some other things maybe we could learn from what we just discussed here that Coaleth has mentioned? Um, Mr. Olsgaard, would you hand the mic to the lady in front of you? It's just a reminder for us to be counseling ourselves based on what has been revealed to us about the word of, well, who God is through his word. So just um, making observations, being burdened, troubled, whatever, by the circumstances around us. But I'm just thinking about Psalm 77, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your works of old. Just that reminder to be counseling ourselves on what's true. Yeah. No, that's great. So when we see the wickedness around us, turn to God's word to help remind ourselves of his character. Yeah. And be comforted in that. Yeah. don't know how mics work okay well i was even thinking of a different psalm uh in a similar vein um psalm 37 do not be agitated by evildoers do not envy those who do wrong 
for they wither quickly like grass and wilt like tender green plants. Trust in the Lord, do what is good, dwell on the land, and live securely. So in the light of how there is wickedness, um, you can still uh, know that God is in control and that ultimately wicked people will be judged. Yeah. No, thank you, Caleb. And they'll be judged in God's timing, so we just be patient and we wait for that. We can't control that. Right? I think there is great comfort in that. It's sort of a a relief that we're not really having to deal with that. God does that. Okay? Um, could you read Romans nine nineteen to 24? Yep. <clears throat> you will say to me, therefore, why then does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, a mere man, to talk back to God? Well, what is formed? Say to the one who has well, formed so it. So hold on for a second. Oh, I'm holding on. That, that's great because that's really what it's the whole idea is God structured it this way that we would fear him. That's just what Koaleth said, right? And that's what Paul's saying here. It's like, who are you exactly to be questioning God? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, put us in our right place, in our right frame of mind. Then we understand how God's made things. Okay, would you continue, Caleb, please? Yeah, back in verse 20. But who are you, a mere man, to talk back to God? Will what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? And what if God, wanting to display his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory on us? the ones he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Okay, thank you. So when we look at the wickedness around us, when we see wickedness around us, we ask ourselves, why, did, why does God allow this, right? How could he do this? How could sin get into the world? And we're tempted to judge God and say he shouldn't do this, right? We should fix it. We should change it. And... Paul's question there, I think, is great because it reminds us, well, what if God has a plan, right, that he'll endure this wickedness for a while so that he can display his wrath on them, which then, in contrast to the mercy that he shows to us, causes us to have even more gratitude for the mercy that we've received. So people will get their judgment. It will come in due time. It's not our judgment to render, so we need to be patient and wait for God's time. Okay, another reminder that we talked about is that, um, and this is in line with what everyone's saying, God doesn't deal with sin immediately. Um, Just because you aren't revealed in your sin at the moment does not mean you're getting away with it. God deals with things in his timing. Not all punishment or reward takes place on earth either. You might live your entire life in wickedness and be blessed as if you were righteous. But another lesson we can learn is that God will judge eventually. And in fact, we will all be judged. So even though wickedness prevails now, there will come a time for judgment. That might be on earth, but it might be um, after. Okay, so back to our text. Um, this inability on our part, right, 
creates a certain tension in us, you could say, right? We don't like to be asked, well, who are you, O man? Or think that we're small, right? We want to change things um, for the better, let's say. We want to make a difference. And we also want to believe that we are in control, at least of our own lives. So when we see unrighteousness, we want to fix it. And if we can't, because God has made things this way, then we're left with the idea that maybe we're not any better off than the animals who go to the slaughter without even knowing it. And this is exactly what Koaleth turns to next in verses 18 to 20. So I said in my heart, which also ties to what he's reminding himself of in verse 17, right? I said in my heart to to answer the wickedness that he sees around him. One is he reminds himself of God's character. Two, um, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they are themselves but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. So we are but beasts in that we will die and return to dust as they will. And when we stop there at the end of that verse, we want to object and say that we're better than the beasts because maybe we have a soul and that sets us apart. Okay, And then Koaleth answers that in the next verse, which is 21. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? Okay, so we don't know what happens to the spirit of animals. They might go to the same place we do. So then how are we better off? We can't see anything after death, and God has not told us what will happen to them. They might go upward with us, and this is humbling and fits with God's intended purpose that we saw in chapter 3, verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Okay, so Koalath then turns to reflect on these truths and draws certain conclusions. In verse 22, So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? So man should accept his lot or portion and learn to be joyful in his work now because he does not know what will happen tomorrow. So our lot or portion is that we cannot see what is coming, but we can enjoy what God has given us now. So the next question we have is, how does this conclusion follow from what he has just observed? So what he's just observed is that God has a structure and a time for all things. Even wickedness exists and God will judge it, right? And that we are in some measure helpless against that structure. We can't change it. Um, We can't go against God's will and do something else. Um, And that we are in some sense beasts 
and helpless to change it, okay? And given that, he concludes that man should rejoice in his work, for that's his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after? How does, how does that conclusion follow? Mr. Sparks, veritably jumping out of his seat. I sat on a bug. (laughs) I don't think it does follow. If we have no control, we might as well rejoice or throw a fit. So how does that not follow? Doesn't matter. Both follow. Okay. Let's say they do. Which are you better off doing? Getting upset about it or just enjoying the fact that that's the way it is? Who knows? Okay. You would know if that he's telling you. And I think we all know if... He only took one side. I think if, if we're not just being argumentative, I think we honestly have to say we enjoy ourselves much better, right? We enjoy life more if we're simply grateful for the things we have instead of grumbling for the things we don't have. Even if you are in the exact same condition, right? Which are you better off doing? At least during this lifetime, which is what he's considering. We're not taking into account joy and misery. I think joy, yeah, we can celebrate I think misery, we can learn to not complain. I don't think we have control over either. I think he goes a little further, and I think you'll be, you, you'll be happy to hear if that's really your conclusion, because he does address that, right? And he does, in fact, I think you must have missed this week, but chapter 2, verse 18, when he dwells on all the things he says i hated all my gain which i gained under the sun seeing that i must leave it to the man who'll come after me and who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool yet he'll be master over all my gain which i have wisely gained under the sun so he turns and gives his heart up to despair of all the toils of his labor under the sun so he's doing exactly that He's despondent because nothing matters. All these things are awful. And yet, um, he still concludes, for the one who pleases him, God's given wisdom, knowledge, and joy. So then he says, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. But what you're saying is, I don't actually think he's right. I might just enjoy staying in my misery. But what I'm saying is that's not what he's saying. Right? So maybe he has something to teach us, is the idea. (laughs) All right. Um, Verse 22, man should accept his lot or portion and learn to be joyful in his work now because he does not know what will happen tomorrow. Um, so we already read that. The, how does this conclusion follow from what he observed? 
let's let's just for the sake of um, time, perhaps, but also just for the sake of um, narrowing our discussion, let's assume that the conclusion does follow from the observations that he's justified in coming to the conclusion that he does based on the observations. What are some ways that you could say his conclusion does follow? there still is consistency in the world and there's you know um, an opposite to everything and regardless of how you act or behave there still is the same end for everything and everyone so um, in the meantime you know being righteous finding joy in that and toiling well um, yeah yeah so let, let, me, let me just try to simplify it a little bit. If you're a parent and you have a child and you give this child a gift and let's make certain assumptions again that you're a loving parent, that you're giving a gift that is a good thing for this child and that in playing with that thing or doing that thing that you give the child they'll be blessed right what is it best for that child to do just enjoy it right enjoy the gift have fun with it put it to good use right be productive with it that's as the parent also what you'd want for the kid right you're giving them something you want them to to be to to enjoy it to be blessed by it okay and if the child is just refuses to play with it and it's like, hey, just have fun, and his answer is, I'd rather be miserable. Well, okay, like that's the situation that he's in. Well, like what do you, th- like if we simplify it down to that and you're looking at the child, right, it makes sense. Hey, you have a loving father who's given you something to enjoy and have fun with. Why don't you do that? Right? That's essentially what he's, what he's saying. Um, so if we can't change things and we know there's a sovereign God who blesses his obedient children, enjoy what he's given us. Right? And this can always be true. Uh, if you, uh, Mr. Sparks, do you have, do, would you mind reading a passage? Philippians two, fourteen to fifteen. You can just read it when you get there. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. It's only two pages. That's <laughs> pretty short. Two fourteen to 15. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, 
the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Okay. So do all things without, in the ESV, grumbling and disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine, oh, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Is that right? Okay, so how could we do all things without grumbling and disputing? If you take that as a serious command, right? One of the ways you can do it is if, well, the way you can do it is if you recognize that God's in control of all things, right? We can be grateful for any situation God's put us in because he's a sovereign God. He's in control of everything, including evil. God is not powerless against evil, okay? So even if we're in some situation that we think is terrible and evil, if we are seeing God beyond that and past that as sovereign and in control of it, we can find great comfort in that and we can be grateful and not grumble and dispute in any situation we find ourselves in, right? So do all things without grumbling and disputing really means that. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. Okay? So we can always be grateful for any situation we're in if God is over it all. So when we complain, we're forgetting this or we're caring more about our way than God's way. So an example, um, there's a time to gather and be rich and to enjoy the blessings that you get from that, to be generous and help others in need. That's a great blessing to have. Um, there's also a time to be poor and lose what you have. So enjoy that as well, because that too is your lot, if that's what the Lord has for you. Poor people can be much happier than rich people, and often are, because they're regularly dependent on God and see his provision for them firsthand. Okay, so chapter 3, verse 22, 1 through 22. So if we were to summarize the whole chapter... Um, I'm going to do this. This was a question, but you um, feel free to write that down on your paper, uh, whatever you want to summarize it as. It might be, you know, be discontent and continue to grumble. Uh, you know, if that's what you think he's teaching, feel free to do that. That's Okay, so anyway, here's how I would summarize the chapter. Um, man is subject to God's fixed time and structure, and this should cause us to fear him, to accept our lot as mere subjects of creation, and be grateful for and enjoy our work while we're alive, and not seek to change God's design. Something like that. Okay? So I wanted to walk through the chapter really quick, and then I have a couple of questions at the end, which I think we'll have time for. Okay? So let me just read through this. This is sort of a me stepping through the chapter chunk by chunk and giving just a summary of it, okay? So as we go through it, see if you can kind of see this back and forth, a searching in every corner for an answer to his desire um, to find fulfillment on earth. See if you can't hear his, his inner dialogue as we go along, okay? So in verses 1 to 8, Koaleth observes that if there's a fixed time for everything, and if God has already appointed the times, 
then the laborer does not have any advantage over the sluggard, 9 to 10, because none of his works will change anything. Then he reflects that God has made each thing beautiful in its time and given man this knowledge without showing him his ultimate plan in 11 and concludes in 12 to 13 that we should just do what God calls us to do and enjoy our work and its fruits as a gift from God. Then in 14 to 15, he asks if God has has fixed things to be the way they are and we should fear him and we can't change things. What do you do with, in 16, the injustice in law? Who deals with that? What about the unrighteousness in, in our time, what would be church leaders? He answers in verse 17 by reminding himself that God has a time to judge that and he will judge it in his time. He then turns from this to ask in 18 to 20, if we can't change anything, even for the better, then we're no different than animals who just return to dust. And in 21, even our spirit might not be better off than theirs. Even in this case, he answers in 22, the best thing for us to do is to rejoice in the labor God has given us because this is our lot and we do not know what comes next. So how can our lack of control over our own lives be a source of great turmoil? Yeah. We should have an elaborate pulley system on the ceiling. Like you said it before, striving after wind, trying to obtain something we we don't have. Even Rockefeller, when asked how much money's enough, he said a little more. If you're looking for satisfaction, you'll never get there with what this world has to offer. Yeah. It's just going to create a lot of headaches and heartache. Right. So in a sense, just give up doing that. But if you don't, you're right. So if, let me paraphrase what I think you're saying. If we continue to look for satisfaction in the things of this world, we're not going to find it, and that's going to create turmoil. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Any other ideas there? That's a five-minute warning. Owen? Cause us to be afraid if we don't have control over our lives. Yeah, absolutely. So things happen in our life. We don't have control of it. We start to panic and freak out because we're not in control, right? So we can be afraid. We can be anxious, right? Because what's going to happen tomorrow? We can't control it necessarily, right? Okay. Okay, so what are some, what are some ways then, um, or rather, how can it be a comfort? How can our lack of control over our own lives, and I should have paraphrased this, or not paraphrased, I should have clarified that in the context of this passage, in the context of what Coaleth is talking about, how can our lack of comfort, our lack of control over our own lives be a comfort? Owen? It can cause us to trust God more. 
it could cause us to trust God more, exactly, because he is in control, right? Um, Alakai. Because we know that there is a sovereign creator who is in control. Yep. So even though we're not, we know there is a sovereign God who's in control. Absolutely. Um, And this God who's sovereign and in control is also a loving God. And he's a merciful God who gives gifts to his obedient children. Mrs. Moore. It also removes a burden that we take on that we're not meant to have because we can't have control and he isn't calling us to have that control. Right. Absolutely. So it removes a burden because we're taking on a job that we're not really equipped to handle. So we're trying to do something that we're not equipped to do and no one's asking us to do, and yet we still find ourselves trying to do it, and each time we do it, we're unsuccessful and we feel awful for it, right? So when we give that up, it's a great relief. It's a great comfort. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Any other ideas? Okay, thank you. Those, I mean, those are all great. Um, okay, so then in those two scenarios, and we'll end with this. I think we have like three minutes. Um, in those two scenarios, one in which the, com- the person is comforted by God's power over things, and the second where the person is in turmoil, what's different? What changes between those two situations? We're assuming it's the same situation, okay? And we're, let's assume it's the same person. So what's changing in those situations? How do you go from not having control causing you turmoil to not having control causing you joy, Mr. Meandering? Our dependence on God. I mean, one word... We're depending on God, and the other one, we're not depending on God. We're in that turmoil. Yeah. Yeah. Any, that, thank you. So, us depending on God, any other comments there? Caleb. I'm reminded of the call for us to be anxious for nothing, but through prayer and supplication, make your request be made known to God in the peace of God surpasses all understanding will uh, you know, be with us. Yeah. Right. So it really, it, if we go back to what Koaleth does when he sees the wickedness around him, he returns to God's word, right? He reminds himself of God's character and what God's going to do, what he's declared that he's going to do. So he turns to God to answer that problem, right? Who is God? And that is how we go from us not having control of our lives and it freaking us out to being okay with it and realizing, hey, this is really a wonderful thing to not have to worry about it, is we remind ourselves of God's character and his justice and righteousness. Yeah. We just, uh, it's an act of submission, so we just put ourselves under the Lord's authority in our lives. Yep, so we submit to God's sovereignty and his authority over our lives. Yep, and when we do that, there is peace, as Caleb pointed out 
um, from Philippians 4, maybe? Yeah, let the peace of God which surpass all understanding. Okay. Any other closing comments before we call it a day? Okay. Next week we'll start in on chapter 4. So if you want to take a look at that and see if you can't do some of the things that we do each class, which is just kind of look at a few verses and try to summarize it in your own mind, what you think he's talking about, and see if you can detect when he switches to a new idea and then ask yourself those questions that we're just going over today. How do you think those two images relate? How do those two ideas relate? All right. Thank you, guys. If you have any questions, feel free to come up and ask or comments or things I didn't address, criticisms.